Matthew chapter 8 is where we're at. Go ahead and go there. Also, actually, uh, while you're there, go also to Mark chapter 4 and stick a, stick a finger right there, too. So We're going to read both these texts today. So Matthew 8... Getting through chapter 8. i got to find Mark 4. All right. Matthew 8, uh, verse 23. If you grew up in Sunday school at all, you know the story. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So now we're going to read the, the, the same account. All the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptic they're kind of syncopated. They share a lot of the same stories. Um, uh, they all have this one. Um, but Mark, which is the briefest gospel, actually goes into the most detail with this little account. So we're going to go ahead and, and stick that in our, in our cap as well. Uh, so Mark, Mark 4 is well, where you'll find that uh, at the end of the chapter. Verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took uh, him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, so we're going to kind of bounce. We'll primarily be in Matthew, but we'll refer to a couple things that we find there in Mark. So in this story, we have basically all the, all the usual suspects presented here that we would expect. Um, uh, in, in these gospel narratives. We have Jesus, of course. We have the disciples. Um, but there's another character that's actually common throughout a lot of these stories um, that we have here also, and that's the boat. Uh, the, the boat is actually uh, kind of a character uh, on, on its own, in its own right. The boat was always an important character to Jesus. Um, and, and let me show you why. Let me kind of show you where that, where that comes from. Stay where you're at. Uh, but listen to this. I'm going to read from uh, Mark chapter 3 in verse 7, where we find this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So 
This is kind of a interesting information for us. We, we, we actually find, in this case, that the boat wasn't just um, a, 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 a means of transportation for them to get around uh, the Sea of Galilee, but it was somewhat of a floating pulpit for Jesus. It was actually kind of a pulpit on water for him. Uh, so if, if you heard what I, what I just said there in Mark 3, that the, the idea is that there were so many people coming, like his, his fame had grown uh, so big that people couldn't help from coming, and the crowds were so great, and, and, and there was so much healing that needed to be done that people were just trying to get as close to him as they possibly could. They just wanted to touch him, right? Which means that they're coming in close, and so he tells his disciples uh, that, that, to get a boat ready just offshore, so he, he's got a place to stand that, that keeps the six-foot rule. You know what I mean? Where, where everyone's just far enough away that he can be safe and he can preach and do what he needs to do without being harmed. So it was kind of like a, a you know, not just a place of, in a way, a place of refuge, safety, escape, also transportation, but um, it was also a floating pulpit. It was that platform where he was able to safely and effectively preach um, without, you know, distraction. And, and, and so from this moving pulpit, this bolt uh, pulpit, there were sermons that we find throughout the Gospels that are being verbally preached from it, but there's also sermons preached from this floating pulpit um, that are uh, demonstrative sermons. And, and today, what you and I are looking at in this narrative is a demonstrative sermon uh, from this floating pulpit. Uh, now um, that we've talked briefly about what the boat was for, let's talk briefly about the boat itself. Because I don't know about you, but uh, growing up in Sunday school, hearing the story, um, it, there, there's terror, right? Like this storm's a big deal. It seemed very dangerous. Uh, and, and so my question was always like, like, how big was this boat? Like, what kind of boat was it? You know what I mean? Which helps us to have then an idea of what kind of storm it was. Um, and how serious it was. And so, like, what kind? Like, how big? And, and uh, it's kind of cool because archaeologists recently made a discovery um, on, the, on the shores of Galilee where they uncovered a boat um, on those shores fully intact, uh, which means that it's actually a, a pr- pretty reasonable representation still without having to guess or, or fill in any blanks. And they dated, they've dated that boat that they found to about the first century A.D., so close even to the time when uh, Jesus lived and the disciples lived and they would have been, you know, motoring around uh, this, this sea. And from this discovery, we have the idea we have, of the size of the boat that they would have uh, been on, that they would have occupied at this time. And its dimensions would have been roughly this, about 27 feet long, okay? So I don't know if that's that communion table to that one or maybe close, maybe around there, uh, about 14 feet wide and about four feet high, right? That's the boat that they uncovered, and and, and they believe it's just this was basically your run-of-the-mill typical fishing boat on Galilee around the first century. So this wasn't a little teensy trolling boat, you know, like we might have and pull onto the river or onto a lake, Um, but it's also like not like a boat that we might take deep-sea fishing, you know what I mean? Like, probably not, not, not something that was big. It was quite small. It was quite vulnerable. And we get the impression that this storm was uh, not average, uh, but that it was above average, that this was a serious uh, storm. And Jesus, we are told, is in the back of the boat at the time of incident doing what? He's sleeping, 
right? He, he's sleeping. Now, this may seem a little bit childish or irresponsible, but humanly speaking, uh, this is a gift. This is a, this is a total gift. I mean, I mean, if this storm is half as bad as we imagine that it was against a boat as small as this boat was, this is pretty impressive of Jesus, uh, that he's able to sleep. And I've only known one person in my entire life that's able to sleep anytime, anywhere, in a moment. And that's my pops. That's my dad. Uh, my dad has this gift. He was born with this gift. It's not something he learned or trained for. Uh, he just has always, ever since I could ever remember, go anywhere. And, and in a moment, in a second, he's out. And I don't mean kind of out. I mean like out, out where he's like just oblivious and has no idea of what's going on around him. I saw this once with my dad at Disneyland on one of the most crowded days of chaos and noise and kids crying and kids laughing and music going and rides going and we're in the middle of just this storm, right, of, of, of human beings in this place. And he just finds this little, this little slab of concrete where, where someone actually wasn't sitting, and he tucks himself in there, and he's gone. And he's out, out. He's snoring even. And you're looking at this, and you're going, this doesn't make any sense. And he's completely oblivious to everything that's going on around him. And I remember thinking, like, this is a gift. This is a gift that, that my, my dad has. And um, so, like, we, we have this storm, which is uh, not small, uh, but strong, serious, so serious that nobody else on the boat's sleeping. They're stressing, right? Everybody else on the boat is, is stressing, and yet this is where and how we find Jesus. Okay? And so, verse 23, chapter 8, to the text, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. His disciples followed him. Now, this is an important detail to the story because it tells us why these guys were there. Why they were there. Why these guys found themselves in the predicament that they found themselves in. And, and as we can see, they did not find themselves in this extraordinarily dangerous storm because they were doing something bad or, or being disobedient or because they made a stupid decision. That's how it's been all my life. Usually when I find myself in the middle of something chaotic and crazy, it's because of some stupid decision I've made. Uh, that's kind of how I've lived my whole life and, and learned everything my whole life. Uh, self-induced, you know what I mean? Uh, that's not the case with these guys. This was not uh, self-induced. These guys were there. They found themselves in this situation out of their obedience out of their obedience, out of their following Jesus. In other words, Jesus led them into it. Jesus led them into it. Jesus led them into the danger. He led them into the difficulty. He led them into this storm. Following Jesus, people, does not mean a life of smooth sailing. It does not. It means a life of turbulence, often, challenge, often, rough waters, often. Oftentimes, difficulty and discomfort is what it is to follow Jesus. I mean, what did he tell us? Pick up your cross and follow me. You guys know what a cross is, right? It's an instrument of torture. And we all signed up for that. All, all these hands went up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'll 
I'll be on your team. Pick up your instrument of torture and follow me, which is actually why most people walked away from him. It's because that's a message that doesn't sit well with us. It doesn't really work, right? He does not tell us that it's going to be a, a, a beach, like we often think with a margarita, cute little umbrella coming out of the top of it. You know what I mean? Perfect weather. No, no. J- Jesus led these guys into the situation, which often, which I, I don't know about you, but challenges my theology a little bit. It challenges what I think should be. It challenges our, theo- uh, challenges our theological notions in regards to what God does and doesn't do with those who follow him. It challenges much of what we've been taught. And yet it shouldn't. Because it's dangerous to follow Jesus. And that it's dangerous and risky to follow Jesus is throughout our scriptures. He taught that more than anything, that reality. And so it's funny to me how the entire biblical narrative that we read and we say we believe speaks to the cost of following Jesus and then we spend our entire Christian lives attempting to avoid it. Meaning the cost. We read it and then we spend our, t- our, our, our lives basically trying to get out of it as if it shouldn't be so. But it is so. Listen to what C.S. Lewis rightly said, I did not go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. This is true. He knew what is true. This this is why many of us identify as Christians but don't evangelize. It's because of this. Right? This is why many of us uh, see something that makes us uncomfortable and we run from it. Opportunity, run from it. Challenge, remove ourselves as Christians. This is why we move to other states, right? Where people look like us and sound like us and think like us and vote like us. Because we don't know what to do with people that don't think like us and sound like us and vote like us. So we go to where people do. It's more comfortable there, right? Let me assure you that our scriptures teach us this truth. Christians do not run from fires. They run into them. I don't know where we ever got this notion that if, that if something's scary, if something's risky, if something's dangerous, uh, then it's smart, uh, even wise, for the Christian to run from it. But our Bibles do not teach us that. Christians do not run from fires. They run into fires. We run into houses that are burning. We do not look at people that don't think like us or vote like us or do life like us and go, I need to get away from this disease. Christians look at those people and go, gosh, I wish they knew what I knew. And someone's got to get it to them. Someone's got to get it to them. We, we run into that house. We find a way to impart to them, to reveal to them, to plead with them, to know what we know, to have what we have. If you look at someone who's not like you and your heart doesn't break, I, that's not Christ-like at all. I was going to say something worse. I toned it down. Christ would look at, at, at the worst case 
completely unlike him. And his heart would break for those people, which caused him to run toward them, not away from them. Christians do not decide what they're going to do based upon ease. We run into fires, not away from fires, right? What the disciples did by getting into this boat was good, not bad, was right, not wrong, was obedient, not unwise, right, or undiscerning because they were following the one whom they said they follow no matter where he went or where it took him or how they got there, right? This is what disciples do. And, and by the way, it's not a coincidence that Jesus just previously in Matthew uh, chapter 8 spoke just prior to this right here to the cost of following him. It's not a coincidence. That's what precedes this story. If you look back, the cost of following Jesus, right? So on the heels of this hard teaching, this is encouraging that we find these guys following Jesus' lead, right? Into the boat, which took them into the storm, which brings us to the storm. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. To be swamped is to be, you know, saturated, overcome, basically, won over, right? So, so like the boat's losing the fight. The boat is being overcome in its ability to float because it's being pummeled. With waves. You guys ever swam in the ocean? Um, I attempt to surf, um, and, and I went a couple of months ago. Oregon coast doesn't get anything great. It doesn't get big often. Uh, if it does get big, you've got you to gotta swim a mile through cold, shark-infested waters to get to the lineup, and uh, no thank you. Uh, so I'll go in with my nine-footer once in a while and find me a little two- or three-foot face because they look like little sissy waves that I can handle, just to find, once you get into them, that they will kill you, like they will hurt you, right? And so a couple months ago, I was in one of these little two-foot-faced sissy waves, and I just dug my nose, and I washing machine, like underwater, I didn't know what end was up, and I thought, well, that's it then, isn't it? This is it. This is how it's going to end. You know what I mean? With like a little two-foot wave. And, and we know from what we looked at, like with the idea of this boat, that there's like four-foot sides here. I don't know what they're seeing. Are they like six foot, eight foot, ten foot faces coming into this boat? Like the, this wasn't something small. Like this, this, is, this, is, something, this is something pretty big, right? And, and, and these guys were experiencing in the middle of the full power and ferocity of these waves, of this unsettled water. And they're terrified. They're panicked because they know if the boat goes, they go. And the boat is going. It's swamped. Right? And Jesus, uh, he's out. He, he, he's out. He's sawing logs. He's counting sheep. Get it? He's counting sheep. I know it wasn't funny. He's, he's emotionally, consciously, like, removed from the circumstance. 20, 25. And, and, and they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Now, before we completely rip on these dudes, which we are going to do, by the way, because they deserve it, um, let's first acknowledge something that they did right besides like following Jesus into the boat, and that is this. When stuff went down, they went to Jesus. When stuff went down, they went to Jesus. Why is this interesting? Well, because these dudes 
are experienced mariners. They just know what they're doing on a boat. They know what they're doing on a boat in a storm on this sea. This was their life. This is where they spent. They'd probably seen it all. They'd probably seen it all and navigated it and dealt with it and were pretty confident that they could handle about anything that would go down or be thrown their way on this sea, but they don't hear. They go to him. They go to him. Why? Because this was obviously too much. This was too much. They were in a situation that was above their pay grade, above their expertise, above their skill level. They were out of their league with this storm, right? And that's a whole other sermon. And, and, and they've, they've already, th- think about this, because he's got to make some comments that are pretty heavy against these guys about their faith, but like, like they have seen him already do things that are impossible. You know what I mean? They've already seen some, some crazy stuff come out of him. They've seen him perform signs and miracles and healings that on some level have produced a faith within them, as small as it may be, um, in, in his capabilities towards the impossible. And so they go to him, which is right. But the way they go to him is wrong. The way they go to him is wrong. Because they rebuke him. They say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Now, we may look at this and be like, what's wrong with that? Like, that doesn't sound bad. I do that all the time. And I do do that all the time. I say this often. Like, that in and of itself, what's said there, like, isn't horrible, but it does depend on how it's said. It does depend on, like, like the intent or what's intended by it. Listen to how Mark records their words here. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It sounds a little worse to me, Right? Like, like, sounds a little bit sarcastic, a little bit condescending. Uh, there's frustration, there's demand, maybe even a little bit of entitlement. Like, that's what's wrong. It, it wasn't that they went to him, it's the, it's the way they went to him. Don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care that you are letting us perish, is what they're saying. Now, consider for a moment all the ways that Jesus could have answered that question. Consider for a moment all the ways that he could have responded to that question. Like, yeah, I care. Like, I'm in this boat with you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I care. Like, I hang out with you every day. Like, people like you. Like, yeah, I care. Like, I came into this world. I came to a place where people hate me and revile me, right, and betray me. I came to a place where they want to kill me. Like, like, yeah, I care. Like, I had a place in glory. I, I, am, I am head over all of this, and yet I, I gave that up. I unseated myself to come and be among it, Right? Like, I humbled myself to the point of becoming one of you. 
Like, like it, goes, it goes on and on and on with the, the ways that Jesus could respond uh, to this question. Uh, and yet, you know, he, he, he doesn't. But this is us. In our fears, our trials, our storms, here we are. Don't you even care? Well, do something then. Well, do something then. I, I, I want to make sure that we know this, um, and I think we do here, but I want to make sure we know it again. If, if, if Christ never did anything else for you and I ever again, he's already done it all, okay? The cross is it. There is no greater demonstration of how God thinks towards you, loves you, cares for you, than the act of his son on the cross already done already done and 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 i need to know this because i as i go through life real time right i i, I come to these places where i think oh, oh god hates me like he used to like me and now he doesn't he used to want to bless me now he doesn't you know what i mean like he's just he thinks differently toward me now the cross reminds me that's a lie it's not true god's love fully on display all time for you and me is there. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. It's already done if he never does another thing, right? But when we're going through it, this is, this is our, like, don't you even care? Are we done now? You know what I mean? Do something then. These guys went to the right place, but they went the wrong way. Uh, there's also this part of us that when we're going through something, when we're going through it, uh, we want everybody else to go through it with us, right? Like, I don't know about you, but like, this is a thing for me, I hate to admit, okay? But, like, we think that if someone really cares about what we're experiencing, they'll be as worked up and be as anxious and be as crazy in the midst of it as we are. Uh, what's the saying? Misery loves company. And when someone's not, it might bother us a little bit, right? Because it makes us think that they don't care. It makes us think that they're cold. It makes us think that they're indifferent. So when we're going out of our minds over something uh, that's creating this anxiety and this worry and this fear, and we find someone sleeping on the boat next to us, like, like it, that might get us going a little bit. That might set us off a little bit. I found in my own life that it's, it's easy for the one who lacks faith in the moment to get upset with the one who has some. And this is kind of what we're seeing here. And the lack of faith that they have in their current circumstances causing them to question their assurance in the one that has assurance in that exact same circumstance. Their circumstance minus faith is causing them to doubt and question that which Jesus had already declared to them would happen. Which is what? It's the first line in Mark's account that opens this narrative. On that day... When evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side. Their lack of faith has them thinking, well, unless you start caring like us right now, Jesus, like we ain't going to make it to the other side, Right? Instead of possessing a faith that would have them thinking, well, this looks really bad right now. Like things are not good right now. But he said we're going to the other side. So I guess we're going to the other side. There's a difference, right? 
And, 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 and I don't know if you guys see this, but what this really is, is the simple reality of what we are all doing right now as Christians on earth. Every single one of us. We're a group of oftentimes messed up, broken, anxious, frightened people who simply just oftentimes doubt that we're really going to make it to the other side. We hear the promises, we read the promises, we nod our heads at them in the, in the affirmative, and then we wrestle with them every step of the way as we go to the other side. This is like so us. And it is uh, in light of that truth that I love something that D.A. Carson once said. I think it was D.A. Carson. It might have been someone else. I'm going to give it to him. Um, we all share these things, you know. Uh, he said, the primary job of the pastor is to help the Christian to die well. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I'm one of you, right? But I know this also in the position that God's put me in, for whatever reason, the calling he's put on my life, that this is true for me as a pastor. Every interaction I have with you, every relationship that I have in here, every sermon that I put together, every bit of counsel that I give, or every time I go to the mat to intercede for one of you, this is really what it all comes down to is that we would all be a group of people that with our lives and the time that we have, glorify God with every bit of it. Die well. We are dying. It is an inevitability. So how are we doing it as followers of Christ? And that's really what this collective is doing here. When we open our Bibles and we pray for each other and we give words of encouragement to each other or we, or we even grab somebody and help pull them up the mountain, we're helping each other Die well. And that's all that the pastor's job really is. It's to say it's, it's right up ahead and it's true. The promise is real. The words of Christ are real. They haven't changed. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't gone back on anything. It's all true. Don't lose sight. Don't lose hope. Don't change direction or trajectory. Follow him. Like, I know it doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen right now with what you're going through, but it's true. He's got to make sure you get to the other side. He's got to make sure you get there, so, so do it well. Do it well. Don't lose heart, don't lose hope. This is really what we're, what we're dealing with. We're, we're as pastors, I, I think really that... We're here to remind people over and over again that Jesus is faithful to make sure that we get to the other side. That's it. And that's what we all are here right now. A band of disciples with a puny faith following Jesus to the other side. That's what the church is. Right? And as we travel there, storms arise and present themselves to us and our Jesus is showing us how to sleep on the boat. He's showing us how to sleep on the boat, unfazed, unshaken, rather than undone. Rather than undone. Because he is certain about that which he has promised. We simply don't, don't care much for it because our faith is little to nothing. Right? Which brings us to verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus responds to them like, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And I want you to notice that he asks and answers the question all in one statement. Right? 
Question, why are you afraid? Answer, little faith. It's all right there. He rebukes them back after they rebuke him by exposing the real issue, which is not the storm, but their lack of faith. This is the real issue. And then he rebukes the storm. In Mark's account, it says he rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And it says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, this is just odd, isn't it? Like, this is kind of an odd thing. Right? Like, I mean, this is why smart people and educated people and intellectuals and logical minds make fun of Christianity and make fun of our Bibles. is because of stuff like this. Right? Like, Jesus speaks to the elements and they obey him. They can't hear. Wind can't hear. Water can't hear. Right? They have no ears. They have no minds. They have no ability to perceive. And, and, and yet he speaks to them to bring about a desired submission. And they listen. They submit. Calvin says about this, it's not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reaches the very elements which are devoid of feeling. Does this sound right to you? Right? Like, like this, this, sounds, this sounds right to me. Like, I know this very well in my own life um, because I know that this is exactly how Jesus won me. Like, rebuked me. Like, like calmed me and subdued me, is by the power of His Word. It's the power of His Word that did it. The power of His determinate will and Word that He spoke out to me. And it was so. Right? As in like, Lazarus, arise. Now what part does a dead man play in a resurrection? Right? All he can do is lay there and be dead. You know what I mean? Lazarus arrived, and yet Lazarus could not help but to get off that slab and walk out of that tomb. Why? Because of the power of the Word of Christ over everything. We must submit to that which He commands and demands because He is Lord over absolutely all of it, not just some of it. And I know that this is why I'm here. I know that this is why, and you guys hear it all the time, I'll say it it again. Like, this is not me. Like, pastor, preacher, lover of Jesus, lover of people, like church on Sunday morning rather than party on Friday night or Saturday. This is not me. The only reason that I am here is because there was a point when Christ came and stood outside of my grave and said, David, come forth. And I did. It's because of the power of His Word that I exist and I am what I am and I do what I do. And it's true for you too. You didn't wake up one day and go, I'm going to make a good decision to follow Jesus. No, no. He woke you up. You had no choice. Because He owns everything. It's all His. And everything exists and consists. Colossians chapter 1 because of the power of His Word. Because of His authority over all of it. And this is what we see here. The water has, has no, no choice. The wind has no choice but to submit to that which He commands it to do. He's not only the one that spoke it into existence and created it, but He's also the one who orders it to tell it how to behave. And He's telling it how to behave. And it must obey. There is no deliberation. It just is so. That's the God that you and I worship. 
This is, this is, the, this is the man that they have on their boat. And I, and I want you to know that this is the one that you and I have on our boat too. It's the same man who also is God and owns everything that exists. Why am I scared? Why do I doubt when it's this man who is on my boat, who is on your boat? This is who we're talking about here. Right? Don't know where I'm at. Hang on. The disciples have already had front row seats to watching Jesus speak authority over demons, disease, physical, mental, psychological ailments. Now they're seeing him speak authority over nature. Nature, right? They're getting the full meal deal. Like, like oh, he's not just like Lord over like being able to cure this and, and being able to like chase out that little minion. Like, like, he, he, like oh, he's, he's Lord over everything. It's not just... He's actually Lord over everything. This is what they're learning here. This is what they're seeing here. They're observing the one who spoke the wind and the waters into existence. And now they're observing that same man direct them in how they ought to behave. Right? Um, we are so undone, and, I, and I, I really don't want to go here, but I think we do need to go here. Um, because all this is going on with these guys, Right? Um, they're, they're just, uh, they're dying, uh, and they believe that, uh, and they, and they know that, um, and, and this is the guy that they have on the boat with them, uh, just as the Israelites, um, had, uh, the, the pillar of smoke and fire lead them right through the wilderness, uh, to the promised land. God over the storm is who they have with them. God over the uncertainty, God over the trial, and it's the same one that you and I have with us in the boat, the sovereign one over all that exists, and he remains unfazed and calm and cool and collected, fully in control of the situation and the outcome. And what he's really doing here is showing us how to sleep on the boat. And, and, and I believe that, that you and I as a church have something to learn here. This is kind of the primary thing to me and the way that it really speaks to me most when I read this text is that Jesus shows us how to sleep on the boat. And in the last five years, I've never seen so much like, like chaos and craziness and anger and division and faction and fragmentation go on inside the church, not outside, inside the church over the stuff that this world has been experiencing, nobody is sleeping on the boat. There are no Christians sleeping on the boat. There's been so much chaos and division and fear. Fear, I've never experienced so much fear come out of people who say that they believe God, who say that they know God. And it's over elections. And it's over votes. Stolen or not stolen. Or face masks or no face masks. Or vaccines or no vaccines. Stuff like this is breaking up the people of God. Nobody is sleeping on the boat and knowing that God is sovereign over every single bit of it. That He's ahead of all these stupid little things every step of the way. That He's taking us to the other side and these are just little storm clouds. And we need to know this. Jesus is showing us how to sleep on the boat because we are going to get to the other side no matter what it looks like as we get there, people. No matter what it looks like. Don't get me wrong. The stuff going on in our world matters. Saying right things and speaking truth matters. Speaking things that are wrong and calling them out matters, right? But God, those are all things that are underneath 
that which matters most and that which is eternal. There is a kingdom that will not ever go away that is coming. There is no expiration date on it. There is an expiration date on this one. You may sleep. You may sleep no matter what storm comes into your life. Don't get so caught up in the stuff that you're getting caught up. Know that this is the one who's on the boat with you. The one that, that speaks to the wind and the water, and it has no choice but to stop. He's taking it, again, he's taking us to the other side. The most important part of this whole text, we'll close it up, verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Um, they marveled. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So uh, the question is this, who is Jesus? Like, who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? What do we believe about him? What sort of man is this? There is no greater question that exists for mankind to grapple with than this one right here. This is the greatest one that exists. But even as established believers, followers of Jesus, as we face our storms, even then, there remains no greater ongoing question for us continue to ask ourselves than this one. Because Jesus is not only the one that calmed the storm, he's also the one who created it. He's also the one that created it. He's not only the man who relieved them from the storm, he's also the one that led them into it. Right? This is the part that bothers us, and it bothers us because it's the part that reveals our faith deficit, our faith deficit, our lack of trust. But it is true. Jesus is the one that caused that natural storm that day, as well as the spiritual storm that raged inside of these guys as a result of it, right? He calmed the sea, but he stirred them up first. And why? Why in the world would he do such a thing? So that at the end of the day, they may ask the question, who is this? And have it answered. That's why. So that at the end of the event, they may say, who can do such a thing and know the answer to it? That their eyes may be fully fixed on him yet again, that they may be firmly fixed on who he is rather than what their circumstances are. And what was the result? What was the effect of them asking that question and answering it? Awe. Worship. They marveled at Christ once more. They marveled at him. The overwhelming majesty of his power, the glory of his authority, the validity of his headship over all that exists. And it all dwarfs the storm. All of it. So here's the deal. In every storm, in every trial of our lives, there's an opportunity for us to rediscover the greatness of God. In every single one. There's an opportunity, which means that the cost of following Jesus is not ultimately a cost, people, but a payout. An opportunity to wonder at Jesus yet again, to be amazed with Jesus yet again, to know for certain that he's perfectly guiding us to the other side yet again. And I get it, like suffering something we despise, but suffering something that we must experience in order to fully know the surpassing worth of what it is to know him. Because it's, it's the trials that press us into his side, right? Like, like, which is the most blessed, glorious experience that you and I could possibly have right now on this earth. is to be closer to him. 
to be pressed into Him. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the waves that slam me into the rock of ages. Like He welcomes them. These things that, that otherwise seem like they would kill Him. He welcomes them into His life because it, it brings them Him closer to Him. It produces more of Him. Right? There's a hymn, and this is one of my favorites, and I know the hymn writer toward the end of his life lost his mind a little bit and said some stupid things, but when he wrote this hymn, he had his mind. It was right. Horatio Spafford, you guys probably know the name because uh, no one names their kid that. And um, <laughs> he wrote a hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. One of the, to me, one of the greatest hymns. Uh, and, and I'm not going to go, I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version uh, because it's a, it's a long story, but him and his family were moving to Europe, but he was sending his wife and kids on a boat ahead of him uh, from Chicago, uh, first because he had to button some stuff up with the business, and so they get out in the middle of the Atlantic, and uh, the boat goes down, and they die. He loses his entire family all in one sink, right? Like, like horrible. So word gets back to him, he hears about it, about six months later, he gets all his stuff done, and he decides to still go to Europe. And so as he's going across the Atlantic, when he gets to about that same spot, the story goes, the captain uh, uh, of the ship came up and said, this is about where this, this wreck happened and where your family went down. And he ends up going into the belly of that ship and writing this hymn. This is how he responds in a memorial service to the place where he lost his wife and his kids, was to go down and write a hymn that's called, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. These are some of the words from that hymn. And my question is, how can a human being that's gone through such a thing say such a thing? Like write such a thing? Like believe such a thing? Right? And the only way that I not answer it is, is, is by that man coming through an impossible storm that chased him to Christ, that chased him to Jesus, resulting in a confident answer to the question, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? And marveling at him due to the answer. See, we don't, we don't need another Sunday school lesson on this text that says Jesus fixed that storm, so he'll fix your storm too. Now, that may be true. He may do that sometimes. But we don't need that. We need a narrative that assures us that Jesus is enough in all of it. That Jesus is faithful in all of it. That he knows exactly what he's doing in all of it. Which means that we can be calm and we can be assured in all of it. All of it. Calvin said, the sovereignty of God is a pillow that I lay my head upon. Which is kind of cute. Because Mark's account says that Jesus isn't just sleeping in the stern, which, by the way, is the back of the boat. But he's on a pillow. He's sleeping through this thing on a pillow. And everyone else is just tripping. Right? But it's true. The sovereignty of God is a pillow. To trust fully in him is a pillow that we lay our heads upon. And it eliminates that pillow. Fear and worry and doubt and anger and all the other fruits that are not fruits of the Spirit that come along with it. It calms everything and it brings us peace. Peace be still. Sovereignty of God. Right? 
So Jesus isn't just our janitor, right? He fixed the storm, he's going to fix yours too, or our sweeper, our genie in a lamp, right? Or our butler. Jesus is our advisor. He's our teacher, teaching us hard lessons sometimes. He's our caregiver, our shelter, our guide, our peace, our comfort, our safe place. Jesus is our light when every other light in the world goes out. It's Christ in all things, all circumstances, all the time. So whether it's cancer that overtakes our bodies or loved ones that get taken from us too soon or finances that get depleted or a country that appears to be going down the tubes, the storm itself is the opportunity for you and I to marvel at him again, to be amazed with him again. Our closeness to him, our faith increasing in him is the prize, and it's the storms of the journey that take us there. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, even the hard texts, the hard narratives, you know, uh, you, you know how I've been dealing with this internally as I've looked at it. You know all my deficits. I, I'm one of these guys. There's no doubt about it. Maybe even worse in ways. Uh, and, and you know it. And so I, I thank you that you strive with me. And then I thank you that um, you're, you're faithful to teach me the things that I, I need to see. Uh, that I need to know again. I thank you for asking me the questions that I need to answer again as far as who you are, what I, who I believe you are. Are you who you said you are or is it something else, God? And I, and I believe you're who you said you are. You, I, I thank you that, that we're going to get to the other side as much as we doubt and, and, and flounder and um, get frightened. God, thank you that there is no doubt that you are going to bring your people to the other side. Um, that you know exactly what you're doing, that you're fully in control, and that you're pleased to, to do so and be so. Um, and so we thank you again for, for this text. We thank you that uh, even though we are not always faithful, you never cease to be. You're, you're just constantly faithful. That's who you are. You can't be anything else. And so we thank you, God, for your faithfulness towards people like us. And it's in your great name that we are saved, and it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.